0: You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, yours and theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Glass. All right, friends, episode 3 in the trilogy as we take a look at different ways that our chronic anxiety sends us messages, learning to notice those messages learning to be mistrustful of those messages. Here's the final episode in that series. Solo episode, no guest, and so therefore, the candle. There we go. My light is getting more consistent. Uh, Just trying to save you guys time there. This is uh, the olive oil, thyme, and patchouli candle, very kindly given to me by Kevin and the crew at Sojourner's East, Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Um... Okay, just lighting a candle on this audio podcast to remind us that God is with us. God's very nickname, Emmanuel, is God with us. And what our chronic anxiety tends to do is make us forget that God is with us. In fact, one of the advanced techniques that I teach, and it is tricky to do, is to learn to notice when you've stopped noticing God. Now, of course, to be honest, there's just times where you're living your mundane life. One of the themes I'm going to flesh out in my next book is the simple idea that, yeah, Abraham had these profound encounters with God. You know, God came to him and said, go to the place I'll show you. And amazingly, in his old age, Abraham packs up and goes, even though he's not sure where he's going. Man, that's that's faith. I mean, no wonder it was credited to him as righteousness. It's just stunning. And of course, also Abraham had those encounters like at the tree at Mamre where, The three visitors came and told him that he was going to be a dad in his old age. And Sarah's in the tent eavesdropping. The way I picture it, Sarah's got one of those glass cups. You know how you can hold a glass up to a wall and supposedly listen through the wall? I'm actually not sure if that works, but in my imagination, Sarah's eavesdropping inside the tent. and She hears the angels, the visitors, tell Abraham that he's going to be a dad and Sarah's going to be a mum and, uh, you know, they have never been able to have kids. And she just laughs at the incredulity of it. I think that's the right way to say that word, incredulity. She's incredulous. She can't believe it. It's, it's astonishing. And that really is the way the gospel of grace is, isn't it? It, it is astonishing. It's, in, it, it's incredulous, the idea that God can be this good, particularly after your hopes have already been dashed. That's some of the places where my faith needs the most work, where maybe I've already felt let down by God. You know, it's not, it's not that God owes me, but still I, I had hoped that God would come through and I've seen God come through for others. And so I beg God maybe for a miracle and God doesn't come through, at least not in the way I had hoped. It, it's tempting, isn't it, after that to never hope again you know, Steve Taylor, the old punk rock singer, he says, since I gave up hope, I feel much better. That's one of his songs. I can relate to that. And so you can imagine Sarah in the tent, having given up hope of ever raising a child decades ago, hearing God's messenger say, you're going to be a mum and a dad. In fact, you're going to populate this place so profoundly that it's going to be more than the stars in the sky. Just an incredible promise. And Sarah laughs in the face of God. And one of my all time favorite exchanges in the Bible where God goes to Sarah and says, You laughed at me. And Sarah says, I, I, I didn't laugh. And then God says, Yes, you did too laugh. <laughs> I like that. I don't know why I like that. I think it's because it's a bit like a fourth grade, uh, year four kind of interaction, maybe. But boy, it's tricky, isn't it, to notice the presence of God. And when we read stories like Abraham's, we can mistakenly believe that every day is a day of faith in God's presence. But what we forget is Abraham lived for years and maybe even went months or maybe even years at a time without clearly hearing from God. You know, just the mundane existence of getting up, having his morning coffee, kissing his wife, checking on the herd, calling a staff meeting with the shepherds, having dinner, going to bed. Just just a day. And I, I do think those days are underrated. You know, they're not talked about much in the Bible. The Bible really, the authors of the Bible really get to the point. But I think those days are underrated. I think God is often doing work in the fellow seasons of our life. I don't remember where I read it, I need to track it down, but I remember reading a Christian devotional author, it was a phenomenal thing he said, where he said, look, fruit is only born one season a year. There's four seasons in a year. We only get fruit in one of them. But for fruit to be born, we need all four seasons. We need that winter. We need the the pruning and, and so on. But as Christians, I think we can tend to expect to be fruitful four out of four seasons. Anyway, what I'm saying is we light a candle just to focus our recollection on the Lord. Just whatever's going on today, whatever's already happened today, just that opportunity to step off the anxiety treadmill. Take a look around. Take a a deeper than normal breath, a more intentional breath. And as you look at the light of the candle, or maybe as you're out exercising right now or driving, you can just... Take a deeper-than-normal inhale and just hold it and then exhale. And just remember, God is as close to us as the air we breathe. And it's so often our chronic anxiety that gets in the way. So, I've been spending quite a bit of time in the Psalms lately. Uh, Psalm 103, I read it a couple of episodes back. Let's pick up in verse 9. Lately, I've been watching a TV show called Homeland. I think it's got some years under its belt. I think it came out maybe in 2011. So maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's a spy drama. One of my favorite genres, by the way. I love spy dramas. And partly because I just enjoy that genre and those storylines. But also, I have figured out that I really enjoy that many of them have you trying to solve a puzzle. You know, this is one of the reasons why I love watching that BBC series Sherlock, is because obviously Sherlock Holmes is trying to solve a puzzle, but you as the audience are following along, also trying to figure out who'd done it. I like those kinds of shows. I like the shows where the audience has to do some of the work. What's interesting about Homeland is it uses a narrative technique which is called the unreliable narrator. Are you familiar with this idea, the unreliable narrator? It's the simple idea that as you are watching a show as the audience... You cannot trust the person, the character on the screen, who's helping you understand what's going on. Sometimes the character on the screen, himself or herself, is confused. But sometimes they're intentionally deceiving you to keep you off balance. So think about like Christopher Nolan movies, like his movie The Prestige. It employs an unreliable narrator to keep you guessing until the very end when you understand what's going on. And because it's Chris Nolan, even when you understand what's going on, you still don't understand what's going on. Or think about that classic Redford Newman movie, The Sting, where at the end, you as the audience get stung, so to speak. It's one of the great delights of that movie, probably for me, a top 10 movie of all time. That's because the the showrunner is intentionally deceiving you as an audience member. They're employing an unreliable narrator you can't trust. uh, If you've seen season one of True Detective, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson giving two of their finest ever performances, In, in some ways both of them are unreliable narrators, but they're not intentionally deceiving you as the audience. They're just both telling their point of view, which is different from each other and in some ways different from the facts. And so you get to try to figure out what's going on. And of course, in that show, there's times where they're intentionally deceiving other detectives and you get to know something that the other characters don't know. So, Unreliable Narrator, it's, a, it's an interesting plot device in, in Homeland. Uh, what's intriguing about it is what you're trying to figure out is the prisoner of war that they discovered after eight years. They bring him home as a hero. He's a marine sniper. He got captured by Al-Qaeda eight years ago tortured, presumed dead. They find him alive eight years after he was captured, and he returns home as a war hero. But as he's returning home, one agent in the CIA, Carrie, her name is, played by the amazing Claire, Claire Danes, Carrie is told by one of her handlers in the Middle East that there's a American Marine who's been turned and now works for Al-Qaeda. And so she's convinced that this returning war hero brody his name is that brody is actually a terrorist working for al-qaeda even though he's coming home as an american war hero big news big cameras family reunion she's on to him but is she and this is where the unreliable narrator shows up because she's a bit unreliable but once in a while you'll see things from brody's point of view the returning war hero and he both has unreliable memories because he was tortured but also, he is also keeping things obscure on purpose. And so, for 10 episodes or eight episodes, you as the audience are trying to figure out is he a terrorist? Is he a patriot? Unreliable narrator. I like it. And hey, you know, Homeland's 10 years old, 11 years old. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but you can watch it. Good show. But the reason I bring this up is I- I'm going to be writing about this in my next book. It, it kind of occurred to me oh, man chronic anxiety and the story I tell myself and my inner critic, right? These different shades of the same voice in my head, the message of chronic anxiety, the message of my inner critic, the story I tell myself about myself or about others, it's an unreliable narrator. And the sooner I learn to be skeptical or question it, the more freedom I think I can encounter. I I think one of the problems is the story we tell ourselves that kind of voice in our head that makes meaning out of life that tells us about ourselves that scans any room to decide if we're safe that condemns us when we don't live up to our own standards that same voice that even projects onto god what it does is it doesn't just tell us the story it kind of it's like it kind of declares reality as if it just is Remember what I've been saying all along. Chronic anxiety is generated by assumptions, and and it shows up when we have perceived threats. So we're not actually in danger, but we believe we are because our assumptions are violated. And most famously for me, I carry a number of assumptions around the broad topic of courtesy, how I should be courteous to others, how others should be courteous to me, and as I've learned recently— how others should be courteous to each other. And what happens in me when I witness discourtesy? And it's as simple and innocuous as people jumping a line, cutting a line. It really gets me going. I mean, it's a problem. I've been I've been working on it for about a, over a year now. Um, but what's going on there is I have these long-held assumptions. And if you remember in the last episode, what chronic anxiety does is it convinces me that if i don't get these assumptions if i don't get what i believe i need then armageddon's going to show up uh, it'll it'll usher in armageddon the world's going to collapse and none of this is rational like even as i say this now it's not that you and i are rationally thinking these things no we're just we're just simply full of reactivity and of course i had to learn this the hard way as a chaplain in my very early 20s when I was 24 and 25 because I would walk into a room at the most anxious moment in somebody else's life. They're grieving, they're reckoning with terrible news, I'm helping give terrible news. And I have all these assumptions about myself, like I must make everyone feel better, I must always know what to say, these kinds of things. And what happens is I can't make somebody feel better in the most anxious time in their life, and so I get anxious. So, if you will, my assumptions have infected the room, and the anxiety of the grieving person has infected my assumptions, and thus chronic anxiety is contagious. So what happens is I have this story I tell myself. Oh, Steve, And again, this is what's weird is I'm not conscious of it. It just is. But if I can get off the anxiety treadmill, I can do a lot of work by examining the story I tell myself. And what the story I tell myself does is it presents this kind of narrative that I'm calling the way things are. And, you know, on a podcast, I'd encourage you to consider that all in capitals, the way things are. This is simply the way the world is. This is simply the way things are must be for me to be well. So, unreliable narrator, what would your life look like if in your notice-name-diffuse path you intentionally stepped off the treadmill? Once you notice you're anxious, you step off the anxiety treadmill. And then take some time and really examine the story you tell yourself, the narrative, and your assumptions around the way things are, and see how reliable they are, because I think we'll all be pretty shocked to find out. Very unreliable narrator. I cannot count on my inner critic to tell me the truth. I also can't count on my chronic anxiety, like when I'm, man, this just happened not long ago, I was at the Sacramento airport on my way to a speaking engagement, and for some reason, the the line for the rental shuttle, the rental car shuttle bus, there was like, 200, 300 people in the line. I've never seen a line this long. And we're all waiting there for about 20 minutes. It was a long wait. And finally, like four buses show up. They had had some kind of a hitch in the system. And suddenly a a flood of buses arrive and we all start to pile on these buses. And as we're doing that, I noticed three guys coming out of the airport, seeing us piling onto the buses and they just run to the front of the line. They don't wait their turn. And so there goes my chronic anxiety And I actually called them to order. And much like my previous story, when I stuck my arm out in the aisle uh, on a plane, these three guys invited me to my own business, as you might imagine. Like, what am I doing? Why do I feel this need to put everyone in their place? There's something very unhealthy about it. But in the moment, my chronic anxiety makes it seem like it's the most reasonable thing in the world. And also somehow, at the same time, even though it seems to be the most reasonable thing in the world... Also, if I don't do it, then Armageddon's going to happen. It's crazy, isn't it, when you really analyze the way chronic anxiety treats us. It's nuts. Hey, Steve, it says, except it says it subconsciously. I don't even know it's saying it. Why don't you speak up and make these guys realize they need to wait their turn? And at the time, I'm like, that's utterly reasonable. And then if you don't do this, Armageddon is going to happen crazy. So this week's um, homework is to picture your inner critic, the story you tell yourself, and the way things are, to picture that as an unreliable narrator. Now, maybe it's intentionally leading you astray. Maybe it's just mistaken. I'm not particularly interested in the motives of my inner critic, at least not right now. Maybe we'll get into that later. I'm just interested in the accuracy of my inner critic. Is it telling me the truth? Is my chronic anxiety telling me the truth? Because Jesus will always tell me the truth, because Jesus is the truth. And truth sets us free. And Paul reminds us that it is actually for freedom that we have been set free. In other words, the pursuit to experience all the freedom God has for you is a worthy pursuit. You often have to fight for it. It doesn't just come to us, but it's worth it. All right, so that's The Unreliable Narrator. That'll also be in my next book. I'm kind of fleshing that out right now. I'm in the the dog days of writing right now. It's going to be about a 40,000-word book, maybe 45,000 words, and I've got about 16,000 words right now. And I don't know how many of those are good words, so let's see. We're down. We're four weeks in. We've got eight weeks to go. I'm feeling a little behind, honestly, but I think I'm going to make it. Uh, MLA was a five month book turnaround. This one's a three month, so it's a little tighter. But I have the great privilege of lots of travel coming up, and I tend to write well on planes and airports. So here's hoping. Um, those of you who are of the praying kind, I I greatly value your prayers as I write this book. I really do want to create something that can bring relief to people's faith, that that you can put in your own hands, but also put in the hands of anyone from teenage upwards who's grappled with the gap between what they believe about God and, and what they experience. So little book update there. Um, let's see, just one more little update from the book. Uh, I'm, I'm going to attempt, I don't know how this will shake out. So as I work with my agent and our editor and the publisher who are Boy, they're just wonderful people. As I work with them, this may not be the end product, but I'm working on these kind of 600 to 1,000 word interludes. And the idea is that they're just little pot-stirring or provocative ideas to get us thinking. And one of the interludes is, I've titled it, To Live is Christ and to Die is Gain. But we live to live as gain and to die is Christ. Okay, actually, I'm not titling it that at all. That's just what it is. I'm going to call it uh, "To Live as Gain and Die as Christ." I, I think what happens in in the Bible, where Paul writes that incredible passage, is Paul wants to die. He he doesn't have a suicide issue or anything. He's just he suffers so much. You know, it's it's illegal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. Uh, the Jewish leaders are tackling him. He's imprisoned. He's flogged. He's he's stoned the, the old-fashioned version of stoned. He has a very difficult life, and what happens when you have a difficult life with lots of suffering, you tend to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Of course. But in Western culture particularly, I think we live the other way. I don't think we live saying, to live is Christ and die is gain. We say, to live is gain, and to die is Christ. In, in other words, we say, Let me live a long and fruitful life, and then at the end of that long and fruitful and healthy life, let me die and continue into eternity with Jesus. To live is gain and die is Christ. Now, I don't say that critiquing us. Maybe maybe I should, but I'm, I'm not saying that as a critique or to make us feel guilty. I just think it's helpful to recognize that we live opposite to Paul because we live in a culture that is opposite to the roman empire roman empire short life western culture long life roman empire lots of suffering western culture lots of opportunity for health and wealth and of course folks of course i know many individuals struggling with poverty many individuals struggling with disease but culturally we're all striving for health and wealth even if we don't think we should be, that tends to be our default. Again, not saying that so much out of criticism as just, I guess, frank observation. So that'll be one of the interludes. What's the implication of the fact that we live Paul backwards? And how might we actually uh, be more mindful of Christ in our striving to have a long life? Okay, a shorter episode today. This is our second last episode of this season before we take a Christmas break. So just a reminder that we have our Calm Aware present journals available. They make fabulous Christmas gifts. Shipping is usually within the lower 48, within two days. And then internationally, you know, we do a rapid ship. We don't do the boat. So you can order a gift. Uh, you can go on CapableLife.me if you know of somebody who might really enjoy this journal and in case you're worried about what it means to give them this gift, it's not an anxiety-forward journal. What's forward, what's front-facing, is the idea that you can be connected, calm, aware, and present. So if you give this to somebody, it's not that they're taking a hint. Uh, it's a very positive-fronted journal. Also, we have our online self based community at CapableLife.me. It's $36 a month. It's the, it's the lowest-cost, best thing we offer If you really want deep transformation, remember listeners, and I love my podcast listeners, remember, you can't listen your way to change. You can't read your way to change. You have to get content and then you have to put it into practice with intentionality. You need a path and in Capable Life, we've built the path for you. So you don't have to, you just get to walk the path. So if you're tired of running into yourself, if you're tired of carrying all this reactivity and pressure then grab one of our tools and, and see if you can get some relief. That's really what we're here for, is to provide relief. All right. Looking forward to seeing you or or chatting with you next week in our final episode, season finale. Have a great week. For more resources, visit com or org.